one of these cosmological views about clay mother earth father sky clay is earth and the earth is your mother for both navajo and tewa we call it, call it like old pot woman or clay woman and so potters will actually pray like when they're gathering their clay and pray to make pots that don't crack and firings where the pots don't break because there are a lot there's a lot of steps in the process where it can go wrong like if there's any wind and one side dries faster than the other, it will break. And during the firing, if there's uneven heating, it'll break. Like a pottery bowl, is, it's like a microcosm of the world. Because in the Tewas believe that the world is a clay bowl and the sky is a basket on top. And Mesa Verde Kivas, it's very interesting because some of them have corbelled roofs that look like baskets. And inside the Kivas themselves, there's murals painted and they're pottery designs. So it's almost that direct Tewa thought that earth is a bowl and the sky is a basket on top of the bowl. And that sort of scalar, like the bowl represents a microcosm of the world. The kiva is another microcosm. The village plaza is, is another one. It goes all the way to the four directional sacred mountains. So that's, that's one way that I know specifically Tewas think about pottery. This is Mesa Verde Voices a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. In this season, we're talking all about trade. And today, we're talking about a particularly iconic item to the Southwest, pottery. If you've been to any visitor center or museum in the Mesa Verde region, you've likely seen some of that iconic pottery. Things like bowls, jars, and mugs in colors like white, gray, or red, often covered in black geometric designs. And unlike that lightweight, portable trade item that we talked about in the last episode, those cacao seeds, this one is a little bit trickier to move across the desert landscape, especially without carts, wagons, or draft animals. At certain times in history, the Four Corners region had over 30,000 people living there. That's more people than live there today. And so that's going to be a lot of people with a lot of need for pottery. And archaeologists have found kilns or firing trenches that are between 30 and 40 feet long, which would have allowed folks to be firing hundreds of ceramic items all at the same time. These ceramics were used for everything from storage to ceremony to cooking vessels. And so today we're going to be hearing from two people. My name is Timothy Wilcox. Here at Crow Canyon, I'm a field archaeologist working on the Northern Chacon Outliers Project. I'm Navajo and Tewa from Okeawinge Pueblo, which is in the northern Rio Grande. He's the voice we heard at the top of the episode. And then also... Hi, I'm Carrie Schlerer, and I'm the laboratory manager here at Crow Canyon. Tim and Carrie are colleagues at Crow Canyon Archaeological Center, located just northwest of Mesa Verde National Park near Cortez, Colorado. Both Tim and Carrie have years of experience working in archaeology and with pottery in particular. And Tim is actually a potter himself. I started making pottery when I was 10 years old. My parents found a Hopi Tewa family that made Hopi-style pottery, so that is the first style of pottery that I learned. When Tim was studying archaeology in college, his professor and mentor encouraged him to experiment with replicating some of the pottery they were studying. So that really took my interest in pottery technology to a whole nother level. And it sort of blew my mind thinking about the chemistry and the physics that went into creating that kind of pottery. So let's start out by talking about the kinds of pottery being made about 1,200 years ago in the Mesa Verde region. There are a number of vessel forms that we see throughout Pueblo history. Bowls and jars are going to be the most common type of vessel that we see. 
Here you'd have utility wares. They're usually gray, unpainted, and those, they were used for cooking. With this huge amount of pottery being made here, how do we know what's being traded? We definitely have a lot of evidence of pottery trade in the past in the Mesa Verde region. There's a lot of different pottery types that are manufactured from white wares, which are painted typically with nice black on white designs. If you've been up to Mesa Verde National Park, you've likely seen some examples of these. To gray wares. Gray wares are typically those cooking pots that Tim was referring to. And also red wares. Now, red wares, we can't make over here closer to Mesa Verde proper, but in southeast Utah, there's a lot of nice red firing clays. So when we see different types of pottery found on sites, let's say at Mesa Verde, and they have red clay, then we know that those are imported from different areas. So one way we know what's being traded is because we find pottery made with clay that isn't available in the place where the pottery was found. And it would be very complicated to move something heavy, like raw clay, from one part of a region to another. And then... We can also look at more exotic designs that would be coming in from even farther away and identify that those would be tradewares from Arizona, New Mexico, or closer by in Utah. But spotting differences in those painted designs can be tricky when you're trying to determine which groups painted them. You know, the interesting thing about pottery designs is that they're not that different across the Pueblo world at any one time. So potters in the Mesa Verde region are using relatively similar designs to potters down near Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. But what's really different, and we call them by different pottery types based on what materials they're made of. So even though the designs look kind of similar, You might call something a different pottery type because you look at the materials it's made of, and that allows you to know that it wasn't made in the area where you're studying. So the second way to tell if the pottery is coming from somewhere else is if either, one, the designs painted on the pottery are different from what's widely used in the area, or two, since lots of the designs are very similar throughout the Pueblo world, if we look at the materials in the paint itself, Just like with the materials in that clay, we can tell if it came from somewhere else if the paint material is made from non-local ingredients. And then the third way. There's a lot of physics and chemistry involved in making a pot look a certain way. It's not just the designs and the, the outside decoration that you need to look at. Potters pick clays, but they also pick tempers. So in the event that you're not a potter, don't worry, I'm not either. Tempers are just something that a potter adds to their clay to make a pot stronger, or maybe make it more resistant to heat, which is something that you'd want to do when making a cooking pot. And so potters are often picking that temper material based on what's available locally, and also for functional reasons. So, for example, here, especially around the Sleeping Ute uh, Mountain, there was a lot of volcanic ash deposits, and they began tempering their pots with volcanic ash A lot of our cooking pots are tempered with a crushed volcanic rock. Volcanic rock would have been formed with a lot of heat in a volcanic activity. And so that means that that rock is not going to contract and expand when you're cooking with that vessel. So that makes the pot a little bit sturdier and last a little bit longer. Volcanic rock temper is just one type of temper, but because it's a very specific type of rock, it would be easy to tell that a piece of pottery wasn't made locally if it contains volcanic rock, but was found in an area with no volcanic soil. Okay, 
So we've covered the ways that we can know if a pottery piece is being traded by the type of clay that's being used, by the designs painted on the pottery and the ingredients in that paint, and by the temper used in the clay. Now let's talk about exactly what trade might have looked like. And really it looks like this pottery trade is happening in two ways. One is the trade of actual vessels, those bowls, jars, or pots. And the second is the trade of the technology, the knowledge of how to make those items. First, the pots themselves. As Tim and Carrie have said, we do find pottery items that were made somewhere other than where they were found. But what would make someone lug a piece of breakable pottery across the landscape? One of my coworkers, Paul Emeriotti, he's like, people don't think about the complexities of trade items. He's like, what if it wasn't the pots being traded? What if it what was in the pots that was being traded? It seems unlikely that people would be carrying a bunch of empty pots just for the sake of trading them. You'd probably have them being filled with different food items. Back in our first episode of the season, Bridget Ambler of Canyons of the Ancients National Monument painted a bit of a picture of why a practice like this would be so crucial in these particular environments. So we have this nexus here. We talked about multiple groups being together. What we see in this Mesa Verde region is people coming together and deciding to form community. And what community meant was sharing. And so we see weather patterns in this region that can be, you can have rain in one area and go over the hill and it'll be dry. And what some archeologists have found is the way that communities were so successful here for so long was by sharing, sharing food when times were good, in one area, people would share the abundance with their neighbors, and it created a real strong, connected community across Montezuma County. So we think of Mesa Verde and in the cliff dwellings, for sure we've got that. At the same time, we have people living here, perhaps twice as many, down on the Great Sage Plain, but they're really all connected, and they're all part of one cultural nexus. Now this could be on a larger scale, like trading seeds for farming, or maybe even a smaller, much more personal scale. Maybe you're going to a family member's house, you know, your mother-in-law's house and who lives in a different community, and you're taking some food that you've prepared. That's probably the most likely reason that we have pots going back and forth, and it's hard to identify exactly what those food items were. If you listen to the last episode, the episode about cacao, you remember that we talked about doing residue analysis, basically taking a deep look at what the pottery was used for. But this gets to be a little difficult unless the pottery was used in a pretty specific way. Especially if it wasn't liquid, because, you know, dry foods are not going to leave very much residue. And so because they're using the painted pots for probably holding either dry foods or maybe water, cooking pots are easier to do the residue studies on because more of that will get soaked into the pot and you can figure out what food resources they were using. But think about a cooking pot. If you were to receive a pot as a gift, like how Carrie mentioned, Maybe you host a family gathering and someone brings a dish and gifts you the container. You're probably going to use that pot to make different things in the future than what your guest had originally brought in it. You would have used one pot probably to cook a lot of different meals, and so the residue tends to be a little bit mixed. 
and doesn't tell you like an individual meal. That'd be an interesting topic of research to follow, especially like if there's a distinctive where that we know that it was produced because it can only be produced there because of maybe the geology that, you know, if we find it traded far away to actually do some residue analysis and maybe we'll find a clue to what was in the pots. And so even though we know these pots are moving around the landscape, it's unlikely that the trade was for that particular piece of pottery, but more likely something inside of that piece of pottery. So that brings us to the second way that this trade was happening. It's not just the pots that are moving, but the technology and ideas. So in terms of the technology or recipes for making pottery. You can look at a pot from across the room and say, oh, that's pretty. I want to make a pot like that. And you could make a pot like that and it might look like that. But if it's something that is either the temper that they're using that is hidden, right, that you wouldn't be able to see by just looking at the pot, then someone needs to either show you where that is or give you that information. You would have to have learned that from someone. To create something, every step you have a choice. You can do this or that, and those choices affect the outcome. So it's those choices that are not actually visible to a pot sitting, you know, you can't see those steps if it's a pot sitting there across the room. And yes, you can copy it, but you're not going to copy all those steps it took to make it exactly. So when we see complex recipes, for example, some of my research is focused on the paint recipes, especially glaze-painted pottery in New Mexico. And the fascinating thing about it is that you can identify the exact communities that are using the same recipe. And that'll tell you if certain communities are in kind of direct contact with one another. So for example, I worked at a site right south of Santa Fe called San Marcos Pueblo. And at this particular site, potters were using a really specific recipe that we can we can look at that recipe by looking at the chemical composition of what the paint is made of. And we can identify different villages that have that exact same recipe. And sometimes those recipes are shared between two villages, but not even the two closest villages. And so you can actually see how close different communities are connected by looking at those recipes, especially for things that are not visible really easily by just you or I looking at the pot from a distance. Throughout the time that the ancestral Pueblo people were inhabiting the Mesa Verde region, there were fluctuations in the way that the trade of these items was happening. Well, in the work that Kirk Canyon has done over the last almost 40 years that we've been in existence, we've done a lot of different projects comparing different sites of different time periods. There was a time when villages were more dispersed and probably single family habitations. Earlier on, for example, in the Pueblo II period, AD 900 to, you know, 1150 time period, there was a little bit more exchange of non-local pottery. So in this region, we're finding pottery from um, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah. And then there was a time when everyone aggregated into these very large pueblos. And so at some level, a lot of those early big aggregated pueblos were probably multi-ethnic, different ancestral pueblo groups coming together. In the more recent period, around AD 1200, there's a little bit less trade wares. And there's probably still trade, but it's of the same types that was made here in the central Mesa Verde area. And they're probably just trading sort of within their communities and not as much with folks outside of the Mesa Verde region. And that's really interesting because that says that there's different kinds of connections 
And perhaps during, in that sort of the Chaco period, the 900 to 1150 time period, that maybe we have a little bit broader connections across the four corners. And in the Pueblo three period, a little bit narrower connections where you're, you're more connected to your neighbors rather than longer distance connections. And as we know, not long after this time, people moved out of Mesa Verde entirely. That exchange of recipes, technology, and ideas may have occurred in the form of something like apprenticeships. It could also be people moving across the landscape. Because if you look at modern pottery in the Pueblos, Hopi, and Zuni today, they are all very specialized. Around 1280, uh, a lot of the Mesa Verde area was depopulated, and archaeologists have used the pottery technology and demographics to create a narrative that the people from Mesa Verde moved to the northern Rio Grande. That's near present-day Santa Fe and Albuquerque. And that's where the table live today. So you can trace that organic painted pottery south to the San Juan River and across to the Chama River and down the Chama River into the northern Rio Grande. And in the northern Rio Grande, there were already people living there and they had a mineral black on white paint technological tradition. When the Tewas supposedly moved into the northern Rio Grande, they brought their organic paint tradition with them. And then organic paint became the dominant kind of black and white pottery you found there. Over time, each group has become known for a specific style of pottery due to the different materials available in their local areas and the designs painted on the pieces. Just a few examples are Acoma pottery, which is easily recognized by its geometric designs using black and orange paints on a white surface, sometimes featuring animals. Hopi pottery, which is made with an iron-rich clay that turns a cream color when it's fired and is then decorated with geometric patterns in black and orange paints. And possibly the most unique of all, Santa Clara and San Ildefonso, which have become known for their black-on-black -black polished pottery with designs etched or engraved into the surface instead of being painted on. And pottery still has many uses in the Pueblos, Hopi, and Zuni today. A lot of pottery that's made today is made for the art market, but there's still a need for pottery within each village for ceremonies and different practices. So even if there wasn't an art market, there would still be a need for people to make it. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Special thanks to Cindy Cooper-Ryder, Dr. Patricia Crown, Bridget Ambler, and Bailey Springmeyer for your help and research for this episode. And a huge thanks to Tim Wilcox and Carrie Schlaer for sharing your stories with us. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, with engineering help from Robert Woodward. Our music is by David Morella. If you'd like to see some incredible examples of pottery found throughout the Mesa Verde region, check out Mesa Verde National Park and Canyons of the Ancients National Monument on Facebook, or visit our website, mesaverdevoices.org, to find photos and additional information about the pottery talked about in today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.